Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Zebra, on The Definitive Rap. Hello, and welcome to The Definitive Rep. I am Bayla Seabrow. Thank you to Vin News for hosting our show. Back in my younger days, there was a period where I was very into reading fictional medical horror books. As time went on in life, I learned that some of uh, that fiction can actually be reality. Today, we will be discussing scary health issues uh, that, that, are, that are in our midst, with our very special guest, Peter Pitts. Peter Pitts is president and co-founder of the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest. Professor Pitts is a former member of the United States Senior Executive Service and Associate Commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, where of his many tasks, he served as Senior Communications and Policy Advisor to the Commissioner. He's a member of the Council for International Organizations of Medical Sciences, expert working group to help advance patient involvement in the development and safe use of medicines. He is the lead author of many professional peer-reviewed publications, including The Lancet Therapeutic Innovation and Regulatory Science and Nature Biotechnology. His comments and commentaries on healthcare policy issues regularly appear in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, Health Affairs, Time, Newsweek, the Boston Globe, I can go on and on. Um, he has also appeared on uh, BBC World Service, Fox News, CNBC, Bloomberg, the PBS NewsHour, NBC Dateline, Sky News, um, La Stampa, etc., and also The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, among so many others. Uh, it, it would take an entire show, if not longer, to, uh, to go into the details of his many accomplishments. Um, Professor Pitts has given healthcare policy lectures throughout Europe, Canada, and the United States, as well as in Russia, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, India, the Philippines, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, uh, Israel, Turkey, the United Arab uh, Emirates, Kuwait, uh, Jordan, Kenya, et cetera, et cetera. It's really all over the world, throughout the globe. His new book, The Next Normal, discusses how we can apply the lessons learned from COVID-19 to advance other areas of healthcare. Professor Pitts, it gives me tremendous honor to welcome you to The Definitive Rap. Well, thank you. Anything that's definitive is definitely worth taking seriously. Um, Professor, we're going to be discussing a few issues today, uh, but I would first like to talk about um, the baby formula shortage. Parents have been in panic over the baby formula shortage. Not being able to feed your baby, I can only imagine the anxiety and horror these parents are experiencing. I, I, I raise children too, and I, 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 would, I would just not function knowing that I can't feed my child. What caused this shortage, and what is the FDA doing to prevent it? Both, both good questions. And let me start by saying, you know, my kids are also grown, but obviously when your kids are little, you've got very you know, specific and dynamic memories. And one memory that I have is that when you have young kids, uh, especially infants, uh, you're walking on the razor's edge about everything. Right. So when, when baby formula all of a sudden becomes uh, hard to get, you, know, you really are uh, emotional. And that's exactly what's happening, and, and rightfully so. Now, 
on the one hand, uh, the FDA inspected a baby formula plant uh, by Abbott in Sturgis, Michigan. And Abbott's the biggest manufacturer of baby formula in the US, makes almost 40% of the US supply. And the, the FDA found this factory to be in horrible condition, bad quality, no safety protocols. You know, the, the employees were not wearing boots where they were supposed to, porous floors, leaky roofs. I mean, this plant was a disaster and it absolutely had to be shut down. You know, allowing the plant to shut down was not an option. A lot of people say, why did the FDA shut this plant down? It made such a huge amount of baby formula. And I'll tell you, the only thing worse than a baby formula shortage is poor quality baby formula on retail shelves. So the, the, FDA, the FDA did the right thing. So I think that's important to say right at the very beginning. And again, to the FDA's credit, they shut the plant down and immediately reached out to all the other manufacturers of baby formula in the US and asked them to ramp up production, which they did. And it took a little bit of time and it didn't cover all of the Abbott shortfall, but it covered about 30% of it. So a pretty, pretty fair share. And, and without that move, we would have been in even worse shape. But then the FDA focused, focused all of its attention on working with Abbott to get this plant fixed and back online. And people will say, well, how come it took so long? It took from yeah, February that was going to be my June. question. Yeah. And the answer is, that's not that long. These are complicated things that need to be fixed. You can't do it overnight. And this isn't one building, it's a campus. So, you know, there was a lot to be done. And the FDA basically camped out you know, at the Sturgis facility to make sure that it got done right and it got done as quickly as possible. Because obviously there's a difference between rushing and expediting. When you rush, you cut corners and you make mistakes, not allowed. But when you expedite, it means you put all the resources you have against the important task at hand, in this case, bringing the factory back online. And that's what the agency did. Now, what the agency didn't do was aggressively reach out to pediatricians to let them know what was happening. So they could be a resource for parents they didn't aggressively reach out to retailers to say, listen, there might be shortage of baby formula, put measures in place to make sure there isn't hoarding or panic buying. So of course they didn't do that and panic buying and hoarding ensued, not surprisingly. And they didn't learn, I think one of the key lessons of COVID-19, which is that when you're honest with the American public, when you tell them the truth and you're transparent and you keep them up to date with what you're doing, uh, they may not like what they hear, uh, but they trust you. And that's important because what we have now is a bad situation in addition to uh, a population that doesn't trust the FDA or the government, not good. There was also a real uh, breakdown of communications within the Biden administration. Uh, The president said last week that uh, nobody could have predicted that shutting down this plant would have caused shortages. Well, that's completely wrong because the week before the president made those remarks, uh, Dr. Rob Caleb, who's the, the, uh, the commissioner of the FDA, gave three different sets of congressional testimony. And in each of those, he said, we knew there were going to be shortages. We took precautions to, to try to mitigate them. So who's, who's in charge? I mean, the president said the other day, he didn't even know about these shortages until April, February, March, April. And all of a sudden, it's a crisis. You know, the president said that we would have had to been mind readers to predict these shortages. Not true. All we would have to be were readers. Because when you shut down a plant that makes 40% of the formula supply, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out there are going to be issues with shortages. So there were real communications problems. And then, of course, there was the issue of a whistleblower report being sent to the FDA from a, uh, a whistleblower inside the Abbott facility that got to the FDA in October. 
a couple of months before the FDA actually went to inspect the plant. And the issues there were it wasn't elevated quickly enough to the appropriate people inside the FDA. So there were, there were also process problems. So all sorts of blame to be, uh, you know, to be handed out. But I believe in the old Japanese proverb, which says, don't fix the blame, fix the problem. But who is the blame? I mean, if we were to point the fingers at a finger at somebody, who would it be? Well, I think the people that have to get the finger literally and figuratively right away is Abbott Pharmaceuticals, uh, part of Abbott Nutritional, because, you know, they're not neophytes to the baby formula game. They've been in this business for a very long time. It's a very big player. They, they know the rules and they skirted them. And you ask why, why would a major player skirt the, the regulatory rules? And there's really one answer, which is being in compliance is expensive, nice. but it is the cost of doing business. And I'm just shocked, as was the FDA, at the horrendous condition of this facility. You know, I believe that Abbott should pay a, a billion dollar fine to send a very strong message that the rules have to be followed. And especially with something as urgently important as baby formula. Could you imagine cutting corners on safety and quality if, as, a, as a major baby formula manufacturer? It's just shocking. I think people within that company need to be fired and at a very high level because let's face it, you know, the fish stinks from the head down and they haven't uh, had a staff change. It's the same people. Uh, there was a guy named uh, Mr. Calamari who testified on behalf of Abbott and they kept asking him about, you know, what have you done differently? And he kept, he kept saying, well, he had just been to the facility and that the people that work there are making baby formula just as if they were making it for their own babies. Well, I hope not because it's the same people that were there before the FDA showed up, they were skirting the regulations left and right. So there's got to be some serious house cleaning done uh, at Abbott Nutrition. So what was actually wrong with the formula and were babies getting sick? Okay. Well, that, that's a good question. And let me be precise here because it's a little bit confusing. Uh, what really called attention to the problem was two babies tragically died and two got very ill because of bacteria in their baby formula. But because of the way that you can genetically test certain types of bacteria, there really is no direct link between the Abbott product and these four babies that were, that were impacted. So in fairness to Abbott, the science isn't there, but absence of evidence doesn't mean that there's the evidence of absence. You know, the, the science continues. The forensic investigations on that front you know, are continuing. And even though the FDA didn't get the whistleblower report until late, and even though there was no direct link between the, the sick infants and the baby formula. As I said earlier, when the FDA arrived at this plant, it was in dire straits and needed to be shut down right away. So when did it become knowledge? When, when did the public beca- become aware um, or, you know, the powers that be that when was it known that there is a problem? Well, in February, once the uh, FDA shut the plant down, there was a one day news story in the New York Times and USA Today and the Washington Post over the Associated Press wires that basically you know, gave very short uh, amount of time and space to the shutdown. It's a story that nobody read. You know, I, certainly, I certainly missed it, I'm, 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 I'm sorry to say. There should have been a, a major effort at that point by the FDA to announce something that was going on after they had already spoken to retailers so that panic buying wouldn't ensue. Uh, the result didn't happen. And what did happen was all of a sudden in early May, parents of young infants walked into the store and the shelves were bare 
and they freaked out and right, rightfully so. Oh yeah. So, so rather, rather than providing a cushion to bad news, the FDA allowed this just to land with a thud and uh, allowed panic to rule. Right. So was there purposeful hiding from the FDA about the manufacturing problems? Well, according to the whistleblower report, there was, uh, which is also very disturbing. And I think that's one of the reasons that the company Abbott signed was called a consent decree with the U.S. Department of Justice, which really means that FDA is going to be there for a very long time telling them exactly what to do. They're going to have to hand over anything the FDA wants right away. You know, they're, Abbott's in a tough place. They are really walking a fine line between paying a huge fine and going to prison, not to mention the, the uh, loss of confidence that I'm sure American parents now have in Abbott and their products. Right. So this hiding was really all about money, would you say? Well, you know, it's, it, it wasn't for giggles. You know, you know, the reason that you do these sorts of things on purpose, uh, hiding things from the FDA, destroying product the FDA wants to see, falsifying records, is because you don't want to invest the financial resources required to do it properly. Right. Professor. And, and they got caught. Professor, let's talk about something else that's scary. Security breaches on medical devices. In April of this year, the Department of Health and Human Services posted an alert to healthcare agencies of an exceptionally aggressive ransomware group targeting hospitals. Could there actually be an authorized person or an unauthorized person or persons who will attack and take full control of system access, remote code execution, change configuration, file system read accession, uh, log information access, and also denial of service, which is very, very scary. Could that, could that actually be? Could that actually happen? Well, the short answer is not only could it happen, it actually is happening. And it sounds like science fiction. You have a, uh, a, a device implanted like in, in your heart. Sounds like some of the books that I used to read. Yeah, you're, you, have a, you, have, you have a pacemaker or you've got a cochlear you know, implant. And right now, because of technology, wonderful technology, these devices through Wi-Fi can send information directly to your doctor. So your doctor knows how you're doing. That's amazing. The ability to get that type of real-time, real-world evidence is a tremendous advance in healthcare. Uh, the bad news is that the security mechanisms aren't really in place to allow only authorized users to get that information. People can hack into the system. Theoretically, they could turn your pacemaker off or send bad data to make sure to make your make you look iller than you are to your doctor. Right. Uh, and what's even more frightening, although it's a little less, you know, kind of, you know fiction book you know plot line is these hackers are capturing hospital IT systems they have access to uh, health records they have access to procurement records and they can shut hospitals down and demand a ransom and now imagine if you're living in uh, a small town or really anywhere and all of a sudden could happen anywhere off, and it could off, it, also, it could also be someone that's authorized meaning someone who works who works sure. in these facilities, you know, someone authorized then, or unauthorized, wouldn't so you say? So on the one hand, definitely. On the one hand, this is great. Hold it for ransom. It's like a kidnapping, right? You're kidnapping yeah. a hospital's data. It could also be used for uh, terrorism purposes. Very, very frightening. And hospitals are not spending, in my opinion, enough time and financial resources to really make sure their ICE systems are the best, offer the best possible protection to their their data and their security systems. And they really need to recognize it as a, a key must do. So 
Are people prepared for this? Are medical facilities prepared for this? Well, some are better than others. In you what know, way? It, well, obviously, you know, the, the bigger a facility is, the more likely they are to have more sophisticated IT systems and money to spend against it. I'm, I'm very concerned about small to mid-sized hospitals that really are operating on a shoestring budget. And uh, advanced IT is simply beyond their financial wherewithal. That's got to change because, you know, allowing any community to have their hospital shut down because of ransomware is not acceptable. And having that data out there that to be sold or altered or used for some other nefarious purpose, also unacceptable. So what can a person do? What can a patient do? You know, he has a medical, he or she has a medical situation, an ongoing problem. How, how well, do people think, protect themselves? I mean, this, everyone should be afraid. I agree. And I think, you know, the best way to approach that is not think of patients, but just think of people that live in the community. I and mean, the community members need to get together and ask local hospitals, how secure is your IT system? When's the last time you, you did an audit? What are you prepared? For, are you prepared for a ransomware attack? You know, how often are you updating your systems? These are, these are fair questions to ask. Mm-hmm. Wow. For almost two years, we're going to talk about something else. Um, lots of scary things to talk about. Uh, for almost two years, the WTO, World Trade Organization, has been trying to stop the stealing of COVID-19 vaccine patents. Now we have the monkeypox vaccine that is really the smallpox vaccine. Health has really turned into a business, hasn't it? What can you tell us about that? Tell us about the the the, the attempt to steal va- uh, the COVID-19 vaccine patent and the monkeypox vaccine. That's really the smallpox vaccine. What's going on over here? Wow, so many issues. Well, I guess yeah. a, good place to, a, good, a good place to start is, should we give for free uh, the intellectual property for COVID-19 vaccines? That's being discussed in Geneva uh, next week. And a lot of companies think it's a good, a lot of countries think it's a good idea. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that we don't need to do it because one, Right now, believe it or not, there is a glut of COVID-19 vaccines. So saying that we need to give the formula to other countries so that there's not a shortage, it does, that problem doesn't exist. Uh, I think it's a lot of people who think that you know, patents shouldn't be uh, protected, intellectual property doesn't count. But at the end of the day, unless you do that, companies do not invest in innovation. And that's why countries that invented the COVID-19 vaccines and the monkeypox vaccine, which is a uh, slightly different version from the smallpox, smallpox vaccine, the new, new miracle treatments for orphan diseases like, like cancer. That's why they're all developed in the West, because we have laws in place to protect patents and intellectual property. And when you take that away, you take away the incentive for innovation, you take away the, the reward potential. And uh, to me, that doesn't seem like rocket science, but a lot of people all around the world who simply want to punish uh, the pharmaceutical industry, say, well, they, they don't really invent these drugs. The government invents these drugs. And that's mm-hmm. also completely untrue. So it's, it's politics getting in the way of reality. And unfortunately, that reality is the danger of doing away with medical innovation, which uh, I am not okay with. So I, I have a question about the monkeypox fact, uh, monkeypox in, in general. Um, is that a real threat to society right now? In my opinion, it, it is not. I mean, obviously, we're all very aware of viruses spreading and thinking about nightmare scenarios. The thing about monkeypox, which makes it such a, a media-friendly issue, is that uh, the blisters are, the blisters are pretty ugly. 
you know, but uh, it is not, even at its worst, it is not a deadly virus. It's just a inconvenience. And we've got to get a handle on the hyperbole here. It, it is not going to sweep across our country. It is not going to, you know, harm, you know, thousands of Americans. We've, we've got, we've got to dial down the hysteria. So how can, does somebody contract uh, monkeypox? Well, monkeypox is a virus, you know, and, right. but unlike COVID-19, it's not airborne. You physically have to touch somebody uh, to get it. So you're saying by a handshake or a hug? Handshake, hug, sure. You know, I think what you're seeing now is a lot of uh, transmission between men who have sex with men. Obviously, a lot of touching going on there. But again, you know, a, lot, a lot of coverage, but there really isn't a lot of meat to the argument that this is an issue we've got to really focus on. And at the end of the day, if, if it does spin out of control for some inexplicable reason, uh, there's a vaccine and we've got a lot of it. Right. But for those that are not vaccinated, um, what are the symptoms of monkeypox? And also, if someone touches a handrail and then touches their mouth or nose, is it possible that they would get sick? Well, you know, anything is possible. But, you know, it's highly unlikely, you know, beyond physical touching. Right. So, you know, people, I mean, people obviously should take precautions that make them feel safe. But the reality is this is not really a, a, a crucial public health issue. Right. And what are the symptoms? It's a virus, you know, fatigue, headaches, sore throats, and of course, the blisters on your hand and bodies. Uh huh. Okay. And um, so, you know, if someone is, is there, is there a way, is there, are, are there testings done? Are there testing sites in place for this? Or this is something that someone would visit their physician for? And, and how would the physician diagnose that through a blood test? Yeah, through, through a blood test, through a, through a, phys- a physical exam. Again, not really, this isn't really a, a public health issue. It's, it's, it's kind of like explaining to people at great length how to prepare for an alien invasion. That isn't going to happen. Right, right, right. And what is the incubation period for uh, monkeypox? Oh, that's, that's a good question. I don't know. So we don't know. Okay. And no, the no, treatment no, is... No, no, we, we know. I don't know. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, the treatment is similar to any other virus, rest, fluids, et cetera? Yep, exactly. Again, this is, uh, you know, it's a, t- it's a tempest in a teapot. Okay. And uh, have there been any fatalities as that we know of? Nope. It's, 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 not a, it's not a deadly virus. You, just, you okay. just get ill from it and then you get over it. And get over it. Okay. Like the common cold. Okay. Well, it's different. But again, so this, is, this, this is not a COVID-19 pandemic, <gasps> deadly pandemic situation. Right. So that's uh, definitely good news. Um, uh, please, please tell us about your new book, The Next Normal. <laughs> I think we need that <laughs> after well, all the you. abnormal. So, so here it is, yeah, The Next Normal. It's, it's available on Amazon and, and in bookstores. And so people say, you know, why is it the next normal, not the new normal? And the difference is that when you say the new normal, people think, oh, it's going to be that way. And that's going to be the way it's going to be forever. And that's not the way it's going to be. Things are going to change. It's going to be a, a normal, then a next normal after that, and then a next normal after that. And that's a good thing because we've learned a lot from COVID-19 that will actually make healthcare and our lives better going forward. But I think it's important to recognize that, I mean, obviously the status quo is a harsh mistress, but if we can accept change and utilize it to everybody's advantage, you know, we can get some lemonade out of the lemons that COVID-19 threw at us. Right. So is this a nonfiction? Please tell us a little bit more about the book. Oh, it's without absolutely. giving too much away. Well, I mean, it, it's nonfiction. And I'll tell you the I'll tell you the plot line. The okay. plot line is that COVID-19 threw a lot of stuff at us. 
and uh, some against which we did better or worse. But one of the things where we really succeeded was recognizing that when the whole healthcare ecosystem works together as a team, we can accomplish amazing things really quickly. As an example, COVID-19 vaccines in months rather than years, therapeutics in months rather than years, diagnostic tests in months rather than years, beating a global pandemic down in two years where it's now basically an endemic, much like the, the annual flu. You know, Our ability to come together as a nation and, and recognize that we are our brother's keepers uh, in, in so many different ways. I, I think that you know, what we learn will help us to acknowledge and recognize and prevent the next pandemic, which, which really is only, is gonna come, you know, it's only a matter of when. And now I think we're better prepared. Wow. So you've written other books before, before this. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about, can you tell our audience a little bit about that? And is, is there any similarity to uh, this new book, The Next Normal? Sure. Well, I've written, I've written two other books recently. One is uh, The Healthcare Equation, which basically speaks to the fact that if you think about healthcare as an equation and the below the line is patient outcomes, you know, making, things, making positive things happen, and everything else is above the line, including costs. Because right now, a lot of people consider costs to be the denominator and everything else going above the line. And I don't, I don't agree with that. So I've got a series of essays discussing why implementing programs that drive enhanced patient outcomes is the goal. And then if we can get that done, cost can be figured out. And then I also have a book of essays on about a dozen different healthcare issues that keep coming up. Things like you know, bringing in drugs from Canada, bad idea. Why you is know, that a opioid. bad idea? Well, because we have what's called a closed regulatory system in this country. Now, when you, it's one thing if you get, get in your car and drive to Canada and go to a drugstore. You know, those drugstores in Canada will give you drugs safe and effective, just like in the U.S. Health Canada, which is the Canadian equivalent of the FDA, that does an excellent job over, you know, oversight on the Canadian pharmaceutical supply. But most people are ordering online. Are they coming from Canada? Are they going through Canada? Are they real? Are they counterfeit? Are they expired? We don't know. Mm -hmm. It's it's really playing Russian roulette with your health. And you know, about 85 to 90 percent of the drugs used in this country by volume are generic drugs. Right. And generic drugs cost more in Canada and Europe than they do in the U.S. Is that so? so? People don't, so people don't recognize that even though they're going to a Canadian website, they actually may be spending more, and the quality is, is questionable. And there are a whole lot of questions kind of like this, where kind of you have your urban myths on one hand and you've got reality on the other. And that book is called Common Sense Healthcare Policy for Common Sense Americans. And the theory is just know the facts, do your homework, don't jump to conclusions, don't listen to politicians, and you'll end up in a good place. And so all three books are available on Amazon? They are. And uh, obviously, you know, I, I recommend them and I recommend them to your friend as. Christmas and Hanukkah presents. Um, and if you can't sleep, uh, they're great. They're, they'll put you to sleep. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to sell books on healthcare policy because it is complicated. And that's part of the problem because when people say, well, what's the solution to this problem? And the answer is, well, it's complicated and it's going to take a long time. People don't like hearing that, and especially politicians, but that's the reality. But, you know, one thing we can do that we don't focus on in terms of lowering healthcare costs in this country believe it or not, diet and exercise. And I know that sounds trite. And I know your mom, our moms told us this when we were growing up, but it's true. You know, pre preventive health care 
you know, is something we don't do very well in this country. And, that, and that's got to change. What do you recommend in regards to I, uh, preventive? Well I, re- well, I recommend diet and exercise. Diet you know, and exercise. Uh, right. I mean, it, it's not hard. It's not expensive. And uh, you don't have to be a Puritan about it. You can still have a, a Twinkie now and then or take a day off at the beach. But, you know, just eating a little bit better and exercising a little bit more, you know, walking, you know, taking the stairs rather than an elevator, little, little things that, that add up to a lot. Right, right. Those little things. An apple a day keeps the doctor away and vitamins. And... How true. And, and of course, you know, things that we learned from COVID-19, like wash your hands and don't go to work if you're sick. Right. You know, these are things we, we these are things that we kind of knew, but never really paid attention to. And now I think post-COVID-19, well, now... we recognize how important they really are. Yeah. Now, people are definitely more health conscious than they were before. No question about it. Professor Pitts, thank you for joining us today. Thank you to Vin News and to our audience for tuning in. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your host, Bela Seabrow. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.